It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Shelly Swanbeck, president and CEO of DTEC. Shelly joined the company in 2002 as Chief Executive Officer and was named President of T-Tech Holdings later that year. With a proven track record driving growth in the digital environment, Shelly is both a market maker and a strong cultural leader with over 30 years of experience in digital transformation, strategic consulting, technology, services, analytics, and M&A. Prior to T-Tech, Shelly led Accenture Digital, building it into a global transformation powerhouse with more than $20 billion in annual revenues. As president of product and platform at Western Union, she led the company's digital transformation journey, evolved the business model to a consumer-centric platform, and doubled their digital business to a billion. Shelly is currently a board member of Willis Towers Watson and achieved her bachelor's degree in finance and computer information systems from Colorado State University. Shelly Swanbeck, welcome into the corner office. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you here. You've been busy, as we said, just before we got on the last few months. I think we talked over the summer and I was enjoying beautiful views out my window of France and the Mediterranean. Now I'm looking at the Atlantic and the intercoastal. So uh, always nice to be water. Where, where does the podcast find you today? Well, Colorado, my nice. my uh, native home. Yep. Always, always a, in, in a actually pretty good weather for fall here in Colorado. Not, Unfortunately, not, not cold a, yet. Huh? Well, a little chilly, not at my mountain house yet, but um, Colorado native. So you can find me here as often as possible. Now, are you in the Denver area, a little bit further up in the mountains? We are. Uh, we live in Arvada, kind of uh, near Boulder and have a place in Crested Butte, Colorado. Lovely, lovely part of the country. Well, listen, thank you so much for you know, coming in today and uh, having a chance to chat. We always kind of start in the early years. We want to know a little bit about our CEO's foundation. So tell us about where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Absolutely. Well, I did grow up here in uh, Colorado. Um, you know, grew up in a, in a let's just say, a middle-class family. I have a younger sister, a couple years younger than me. And um, I guess just grew up in an environment feeling like I could, had the opportunity to experiment, try new things, um, played a lot of sports, um, very, very focused uh, at school. I was a student athlete. And for whatever reason, when I was 15 years old, I decided it was time to start working. And mm. at the time, that wasn't allowed. So I wrote a, an article to the local newspaper um, complaining that I thought, you know, every 15-year-old was just as qualified to work as a 16-year-old. And so I guess I guess I, I had a passion for work in my early years <laughs> and that. definitely a passion for sports. Yeah, and 
team, team building. We'll hear about that more later. I remember our conversation last summer. What did mom and dad do? My father was a civil engineer at the Denver Water Department. My mom um, was a stay-at-home stay mom part-time, but also worked as an accountant and worked out of our home and was probably one of the early adopters to computers back in the day. Ooh. So I remember having one of those first computers where the, the monitor and the CPU and everything was one big, huge hunk of metal on the on the desks downstairs. <laughs> Love that. What were some of the earliest foundational learnings you think you got from mom and dad during those early years? Um, I think just um, definitely a very good um, base for just values, you know, who I am as a person, doing the right thing all of the time. Um, we were very, uh, very close as a family, but also just a passion for learning, I would say, a passion for school. And um, we started playing sports when we were pr pretty little. And I think, you know, you don't realize what that teaches you at the time, but certainly teaches you to adjust to dynamic situations and figure out what your role is on a team versus just as an individual. Where did you think that work ethic came from and particularly inspire you to write that article at 15? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I don't know. I guess I just felt like I, my father was, you know, um, very dedicated to his job, seeing my mom work part-time and also, you know, care for my sister and I. And I guess I just kind of wanted to do something independent. And um, I think, unfortunately for my mom, I was able to get that first job at McDonald's and liked it so much. I ended up being the assistant manager pretty soon and signed up for opening the store on the weekends. And since I couldn't drive, she had to drive me to work at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> That's probably one of the reasons why that 16-year-old, you know, age is in there, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. What, what about other early influencers that, you know, inspired you during those younger years? Was there a, a grandparent, a coach, a teacher that, you know, had an impression on you? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. My um, father's parents um, grew, uh, had a ranch. So I grew up in the summers um, on a ranch. And I think that really taught me hard work, like the real definition of hard work and what it, you know, what it took to, to earn a dollar and to, you know, really value money because that was a tough living. And then my mother's parents, my grandfather owned his own business. And so I got to see what that looked like in terms of, you know, what, what, um, what came along with that, you know, the, maybe the country club memberships and some of the social uh, opportunities, but also again, the hard work and the real responsibility of taking care of a business and all of your employees. I think I know the answer to this question, but were you a good student in school? I was a straight A student. Yes. <laughs> I thought that was coming. I thought that was coming. Was, was that, you know, kind of self-motivated? Was uh, yes. I remember my dad telling me, son, you know, he was an educator, a PhD, and, and was a, actually a principal at an elementary private, a public school. But son, treat every you know, good grade as a paycheck. And I was like, I never forgot that. My kids say, Dad, you've told me that so many times. Quit that story. <laughs> uh, interesting. Um, you know, I, we, it was self-motivated. And my parents never, never um, pressured us for our mm. grades. I do, I do remember um, that we'd, we'd always get to go out for a dairy ice cream cone to celebrate good grades, but I didn't get paid for them or anything like that, like some of some others, but it was always definitely self-motivated. Yeah. And you mentioned sports was one of your main outside activities. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to get into that in a minute because I know it had a very formative uh, part of your career, but what else? Was there music, theater, debate? You know, what other kinds of things were you involved yeah, in? Yeah, I was in the jazz band. I played the saxophone. Nice. 
um, and I was in student government, and uh, so those definitely played a role uh, as I got into high school and played sports more ser seriously and competitively. I had to choose, so I chose sports um, versus all those other things, but they definitely, you know, played a role in, I guess, me exploring life and, and uh, learning along the way as well. What were the first sports you got involved with as a kid and that evolved into high school? Yeah, uh, soccer was my first and then basketball, um, really liked softball. That was probably one of my better sports, played some volleyball. Uh, when I was in junior high, played all those sports. So year round was playing at least one, if not two sports along the way. And um, had my had the high school track coach ask me to try out for track and uh, be on the team in junior high. And I hated track. I hated running. I hated jumping. <laughs> I hated all of that. But somehow he convinced me that I needed to be on the track team. So that was a short stint. So I'd say the main sports were uh, soccer and softball and basketball. And I played those through high school. Nice. And you went on to play college ball as well. I actually didn't. I could have, um, but I chose not to. I decided I really wanted to focus on school. And so I went to Colorado State University and uh, decided to get a double major. And um, at the time I was looking at finance and math, I ended up uh, discovering computer programming along the way. And so changed my major and graduated with a computer information systems and finance degree. Now, you mentioned entrepreneurial things, I think, as you said, one of your grandparents uh, mm -hmm. had his own business or her own business. Mm -hmm. What were the kind of things that you did as an entrepreneur as a kid? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, I think just, well, I, I would say, I don't know if it's entrepreneurial, but what I would just say is, you know, I started early, as I said, at uh, when I was working at McDonald's and very, very quickly ended up um, being the assistant manager. And then, and then pretty soon after realized that, well, that was interesting. I would really wanted to do something different. And part of what I wanted to do is not just, not just make money at a job, but um, have some other benefits. And so, you know, part of what I had to do is help pay for my own uh, clothing budget. And so I decided I was going to work at a clothing store. <laughs> nice. So that helped me uh, not just through college, but definitely helped me as I was graduating college and finding my first job and realizing, you know, what it costs to start a business wardrobe and that sort of thing. So I guess I was always looking for a job that had something more than just money. In fact, when I was in college, I had three jobs. Um, for different reasons to get different experience and sort of different perks. And so maybe not entrepreneurial in terms of starting my own business, but let's just say finding things that could benefit me in multiple ways. Were you a saver? Absolutely. In fact, <laughs> my, uh, my mother used to, one of her favorite memories is, is looking in my dresser drawer after I had moved out of the house and I had, uh, saved all these birthday cards and in fact had forgotten the fact that all the birthday money <laughs> was still oh. in them <laughs> <laughs> oh that was a nice surprise yeah. yeah yeah so you went to csu um was it kind of a foregone conclusion that you said mom and dad didn't push you a lot but did they expect you to go to college you know, I think they did expect me to go to college. That was just never part of the conversation because I expected me to go to college. Um, so I'd say, yeah, foregone conclusion, going to college, where was definitely a choice. We didn't we didn't have the money for me to consider out-of-state um, options. So I uh, toured all the in-state colleges and did everything I could to get as many scholarships. I remember $75 scholarships, $150 scholarships. I was like on the on the, on the scholarship roadshow, um, picking up help everywhere I could and ended up at CSU, which turned out to be a great place for me because it's a very 
uh, hardworking sort of has a, a real work ethic to it uh, culturally. So that was a great fit. Awesome. And you said you changed majors a little bit, but landed mm-hmm. eventually on business? Yeah. So I ended up with computer information systems and also a degree in finance. And um, that was a bit of an accident. I just sort of fell in love with with the computer programming and technology when one of my freshman classes. And so decided that was going to be a lot more interesting than a math degree. And did you work uh, while you went to school as well? Was that kind of expected as well, along with the scholarships you received? Yeah, uh, I did. Uh, I worked at the computer uh, the computer lab. I yeah. kept working at the clothing store. I ended up being a teaching assistant for um, one of the business writing professors. And um, yeah, so three jobs all at once was a little bit much in, in the honors program with pursuing two degrees at the same time. But I guess... One of the things that, that I learned early on was to how to manage my time and yeah. just appreciated, you know, being able to do a lot of things at the same time. Yeah, awesome. And then you did something which a lot of people don't really do, which is go take a first job and pretty much stay there for a long time. Yeah. 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 28 years. So Accenture, tell us about, you know, kind of the choices around graduation and, and why you chose them as your first employer. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, they were my lowest salary job offer, so I suppose that's <laughs> not always the easiest choice to make. Right. But I f- somehow felt like I I fit from the very beginning, and mm-hmm. and I think the thing for me was I, I definitely enjoyed the people I met, but I just liked the idea of consulting and liked the idea of this opportunity to learn new things and this opportunity to work at different clients. And almost felt like to me like I could have multiple careers but all with the same employer. And so it just, it just felt like a good fit for me. And, you know, I joined and everybody always asked me, did I, did I always strive to be a partner? And my answer is I always assumed I would be one, right. I just mm-hmm. started the job and did good work and had lots of great client opportunities. And it was kind of always, I guess, I guess an expectation, if you want to say that, I just sort of an assumption that, yeah, I'd end up being a partner someday. And did you uh, start with leadership responsibilities pretty early on? When did you start managing people? I did nine months in. Um, I was on a a 300-person custom system project to create a telephone billing system for a company out in California. And the technology came um, pretty easy to me because of my uh, college. And so, yeah, my first nine months in, they asked me to actually be the supervisor of the team I was on. And so... Nice. That was a real quick lesson in leadership, particularly when you go from being a colleague and a peer to now their boss. And I think that was very formative for me, I would say, in my leadership um, style and abilities to be able to navigate a situation where you were, you know, I'm the boss of the people that I was just their peers. Right. And most of them about the same age, perhaps even some that were older. Yeah. Yeah. Some older, uh, mostly the same age at the time, but um, definitely, definitely some, you know, actually some people that had been with Accenture longer than I had. And so that was probably, you know, that was part of my challenge early on, but, um, and where I learned to just be a very humble, I'd say Mm -hmm. collaborative sort of servant leader. And that has served me very well over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Did that come naturally to you, uh, kind of starting that right away? Because I can imagine, particularly with those that had been at Accenture a while, you know, might have been a little, feathers a little ruffled thinking maybe they should have had your job. You know, I think it was, it was pretty natural for me and it was okay natural for the team just because, mm-hmm. um, as I said, the technology had come, came pretty easy for me. And so while I, I was, uh, 
my first assignment was a hundred page structure chart and rest of my teammates were getting one page uh, data programs. And so I was sort of helping them all along the way anyway. So I, you know, I think that was part of why I was asked to take over the team is because I was, um, I was sort of already acting as a player coach. And so it came pretty natural. Did you achieve partner in the time frame that you expected to? One year late, darn it. Um, <laughs> oh, that must have been a motivator. Huh? Oh, that was that was a tough one. Uh, maybe a story for another day. But um, I would say, you know, yes. And one thing I learned along the way is there were some assignments I really didn't want to do along the way because I thought they were setting me back. And mm. once you get through them and you look back, you realize, actually, no, they didn't set me back. In fact, they might have helped propel propel me forward because I was you know, there were some assignments where I thought I was sort of past them sort of beyond that and, you know, was able to go into the situation and do something more that was being asked of me. And then, you know, it turns out sometimes those things can accelerate your career. Did they have you specialize in any particular, you know, project function work or sector or industry, or did you get real good smattering across all of the center's uh, client base? You know, I got a real smattering. I would say one of the stress points for me at one point in my career was I was not as specialized. And at the time, specialized skills was, you know, kind of the thing. Everybody was, you know, are you a supply chain expert? Are you a, you know, finance expert? Or are you a real technology expert? Are you a change management expert? And I wasn't a functional expert. And it, and if that was that was stressful for me at, at one point. But what I learned was what I, I uh, there was, there was, there was good, demand for the utility, those utility players and just yeah. good leaders. And that's really how I made my career. Yeah. Did you have uh, a lot of mentors along the way was, was, you know, a center and environment where that was something that people did, you know, and looked up to folks that maybe were partners ahead of you, or maybe, you mm -hmm. know, had been there a longer period of time that kind of helped you along. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely an environment where mentorship was important. And, you know, I would say I, I always sort of, I, I didn't necessarily have one mentor that stands out um, for my career, but I always sort of looked at it as all of those folks I was working with, just really thinking about, you know, what were those leadership characteristics I wanted to emulate and what were the ones that I just definitely never wanted to emulate, didn't want to be like, right? I was always sort of, I guess, just very observant about that. And so I used those people as mentors too, just to learn about what was making them successful and and of course, had a lot of colleagues. Some of my colleagues were my best mentors because we did a lot of hard things at Accenture, right? Lots of hard projects, hard client situations. I had a few clients actually that were mentors for me mm. as well along the way. Tell us about some of those situations without mentioning names. Where yeah. you maybe observe behavior and said, wow, I'm never going to do that. Or well, I can see what happened with that situation. And, you know, kind of made a registered note on you know, either it was managing people or, or perhaps managing clients on the outside because you spent a lot of time with clients over there. Yeah, I did. Probably the most stressful um, project in my career actually was probably about five years into um, Accenture. And we were working with a client that was actually launching a new business and we were helping set up their financial systems. And the CFO and the CIO just absolutely did not like each other. And it created real, real stress. Within the client. And, Within, within the client, the client real the stress in their client organization. And somehow I ended up being the only person allowed in the CFO's office and also the CIO's office. And so it's sort of, you know, I didn't want to emulate either one of them. And I was a little bit of the 
the peacekeeper, if you will, and trying to navigate getting their business launched. And uh, in fact, one of them committed suicide um, during the project. And so that was definitely a a lesson in letting things and egos just be taken way too seriously. You know, we talked earlier about your you know, team sports. And I remember our conversation mm. over the summer, how much formative that's been. Mm-hmm. If you went back during your years at Accenture, and we're going to get to T-Tech in a minute, but if you look over your years at Accenture, you know, where would you say you kind of drew the most and in, in what were those learnings from, you know, the team sports you played back in high school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I guess I'd say a couple things. First of all, I guess just the discipline, you know, in playing team sports, there's, I think that's, that's always a, a good foundation, a good baseline. I was not the most natural athlete. So I wasn't naturally the best individual contributor on any of those sports on any team I played on. I was most often the team captain, but it wasn't because, you know, I was the best softball player or the fastest soccer player and the like. What I learned through all of that is leadership, how to bring a team together, how to motivate a team, how to, how to, you know, navigate that on the field and off the field, if you will. But probably the best thing I learned is figuring out how I could contribute to make the team successful. It wasn't about my individual performance. It was about what the team needed me to do in that moment, in that game, off the field. And that I think at the time, I don't think I, I don't think I was as conscious of what I was doing, but I think that has probably served me the very best in my career. Awesome. So 28 years at Accenture. Mm-hmm. That's a career for most people. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure you probably had opportunities to leave. There were guys like me, recruiters calling you from time to time, yeah. trying to attract you here and there. You said no for a long period of time. You you didn't go directly to T-Tech. I know you spent a couple of years right. at, at Western Union. Tell us about that transition and kind of the thought process behind gosh, I built my whole career here. I'm a partner. Yeah. Amazing mm-hmm. things. Clients love me. I've been the peacemaker. Mm-hmm. How did you kind of put together, this is the right time to, to move on? Well, it was all by accident. So it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, hadn't planned, hadn't planned it. We were at a, we were at um, a little bit of an inflection point at Accenture, um, new CEO um, was helping her with what, what the new growth strategy for Accenture would be. And I had been leading a business that we had started called Accenture Digital. And so there were going to be some changes and it was going to be a change, you know, for me personally in terms of what I would do at Accenture. And uh, long story short, called a colleague I had worked with and just for some outside advice and an opportunity came up and um, externally. And I realized that maybe it was time for me to, if I was going to make a pivot and wanted to be able to serve on um, public company boards, was not that was not something you could do at Accenture. And just decided, you know, maybe it was opportunity to take a new challenge and put all that great digital transformation and everything I learned building Accenture Digital to work at uh, a company that was local here for me in Colorado. And so that was a big piece of it is also just being able to have a team day to day, have a have an office, have a team that, you know, you could work with day to day at Accenture. We're on the road all the time, um, working quite virtually and with global teams. And so it was really, it was just a little bit of happenstance and circumstance um, versus anything that was planned. The fact that Western Union's based in Colorado. Correct. Yeah. And so was T-Tech. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Terrific. And you spent a couple of years there before moving to T-Tech. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a little bit of a different career trajectory. Again, a couple of years versus the mm-hmm. 2830. Mm-hmm. Was it the corner office that attracted you? Was it the business? You know, what was it about? Yeah, a little bit of both. Definitely mm-hmm. a little bit of both. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time at Accenture. Uh, when we're building Accenture Digital and the whole customer experience space, and that's the space that T-Tech's in, so I find that pretty uh, pretty interesting, um, really across industries, and just an opportunity, as you said, the corner office, but, um, you know, in, in a services industry, which is obviously where I spent my majority of my career, the 28 years of Accenture, so, you know, we our services are different, so it's not a um, not exactly the same thing. But, but you're kind of back probably, into consulting. Yeah, right? kind of back into consulting, yeah. and yeah. so that was pretty natural for me. And again, global company, you know, lots of juicy transformation uh, <laughs> challenges, chance to you know uh, build a team, you know, be part of a business that's been around for 40 years, be part of um, the evolution of that. So that was all part of what attracted me here. Now, are the founders still around or are they still? Yeah, Ken Tuckman's still around. Yep, yeah. absolutely playing and very involved in the dis- business. Now, was he CEO before you came in or there had been others prior to uh, his relinquishing that role or if he ever had he, it? No, you no, know, he is. And, and, and uh, without getting into t- too complicated here, we have two business units uh, inside of T-Tech. And so Ken is still the, the CEO of the overall business. I'm the yeah. president of the overall business and the CEO of our biggest uh uh, business segment. So regardless, it's just a, it's a partnership and it's about moving yeah. the business forward. And um, there's nobody more passionate than him about this whole CX space. Love it. So thinking about leadership, and if you think mm. back to the days of working at McDonald's and then, you know, mm-hmm. obviously those first project, you know, work that you had at Accenture, how, how would you s- describe your leadership's evolution over that period of time? Um. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great or has question. It been consistent? I think, you know, have you, have you, are I think you, the things that have, yeah, <laughs> I think the things that are consistent, a couple of things that are consistent, which is my upbringing, you know, I think a combination of my parents and my grandparents, I've sort of always had this mentality of, I got to earn my keep every day. And um, so that's been consistent from the time I started at McDonald's at 15 to now, every day I wake up feeling like, I work for the team as much or more than they work for me. And what am I going to do to make a difference and make an impact and earn my keep today? So I think that probably is, you know, certainly been consistent. I think what I've learned along the way, particularly as you, you know, lead bigger global complex organizations is a lot around um, just this whole player coach mentality. You know, Mm. you can't be on the field doing, you know, doing the work for the team all the time. Sometimes you got to sit back and just, let the team do it, even if they're struggling a little bit. And so over the years, you learn when it's time to step in, when it's time to just sit back, you learn what it takes to kind of activate change across an organization, particularly a global one. And I think what I've gotten really passionate about, certainly since I started uh, uh, when we were building Accenture Digital, is just this idea of a diverse team. And I don't just mean the diverse in terms of how we think about it, gender diverse, diversity, yeah, um, ethnic diversity, et cetera, but really diversity in terms of backgrounds, diversity in terms of approaches and really passionate about how do you build a team and a culture where everybody can bring their, bring their best strengths and learn how to work together. And so I think that's probably where I've grown the most as a leader and probably where one of my, you know, everybody has a super strength. That's probably one of mine. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, 22nd 
21st century CEOs have a little bit of a different workforce than 20th mm -hmm. century CEOs. And I've, I've kind of bridged the gap in my recruiting and my operational career. And, and I think it's quite common these days where you see a lot of CEOs having their answers questioned rather than their questions answered. <laughs> mm. And I'm wondering if you're encountering that. Do you find mm -hmm. that, you know, with the younger workforce, there's, you know, folks that, that perhaps speak up a little bit more than we did mm -hmm. when we were growing mm -hmm. up in organizations like Accenture mm -hmm. or Procter & Gamble or Disney? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, what I've, what I've, um, I guess what I've discovered or, you know, what I like to do is, rather than is to give them give them opportunities to do exactly that like give them forums to have direct conversations with mm -hmm. me at all levels you know open office hours you know you can pick your way of doing it i find that then ends up being a much more productive discussion <laughs> than just having people you know question the strategy of a company or as you said your answers questioned so i think and i find that actually to be quite a learning experience to get a pulse on what's going on in the organization and what's top of mind and let some of those great ideas bubble up across the organization. Yeah. You mentioned company culture and that's so important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, mm -hmm. you know, I spoke about this, that, you know, in recruiting, that's probably the single biggest thing internal or externally mm -hmm. you're working as a recruiter like myself or internally mm -hmm. is really having a good handle on your culture and being able to recruit against mm -hmm. that. Do you see that evolving in the 40 years at T-Tech? And, you know, are you kind of in a shift where, you know, maybe you have to modify that a little bit? Or are you kind of more status quo with regards to how T-Tech's culture has uh, evolved over these last four decades? Definitely not status quo. I mean, I think this is a big part of, of the transformation we have underway. And it's all just driven by... I think the environment that we all live in, which is change is a constant, right? You just can't be done with change. And so how do you create a culture that's always learning and that it's good at change? I often, you know, say if, if I mean, that's, that's a part of our biggest job as leaders is to create a company that's good at change because it's not one and done. It's constant change, a good, good at learning, Okay, you know, good at innovation. As I say, innovation and change is messy. So sometimes you just got to teach people to embrace the mess. Mm -hmm. um, as a leader, sometimes it gets a little too messy. So sometimes you got to jump in and, you know, <laughs> sort out the mess. <laughs> right, right. But sometimes, sometimes creating a little chaos and a little mess in the organization is actually what brings the change. Yeah, yeah. That generates two interesting questions. And first one on culture you know, you're 20 countries, I believe. And yep. how, many, how many employees? Mm -hmm. 40, 50,000, I think. 60,000, 60, right? 60,000. Fabulous. And if you think about, you know, culture again, in terms of communicating that across, mm -hmm. you know, the various countries and mm -hmm. uh, various offices, how do you do that in today's world? Do you have regular town halls? Do you have newsletters? Is there mm -hmm. ways that you direct your direct reports with regards to that cultural communication? So mm -hmm. people kind of know you know, what's evolving and what's changing. Yeah, I think it's all of the above approach. I mean, part of it is actually just being out in the field with, with the teams and clients, you know, that's, there's probably nothing more powerful than that, right? I was in the Philippines a couple of weeks ago and, you know, dancing with the team, serving them pancakes, you know, just being <laughs> part of that. That's a lot of what builds culture and being very engaged. You know, I find, uh, yeah, of course you can send emails and things. I, f I find those not to be that helpful. I prefer videos. Mm. Um, 
um, just because I think it's just more engaging for everybody. And then just those regular town halls, those regular open office hours, those, you know, and I think, I, I don't know, I, I think one thing that kills culture is PowerPoint. So I, I don't like to have a lot of presentations. I like to have them be a little bit more open-ended sort of natural discussions versus, you know, always presenting to everybody or yeah. I'm talking at them, if you will. Right, right. My, my second question along that is you talk about issues and CEOs. You know, mm -hmm. the buck stops in the corner office, let's face it. <laughs> yeah. <where> ultimately, <laughs> those issues come up. You have to kind of decide how to you know, zoom in or, or zoom out. How do you mm -hmm. kind of make that call? You know, particularly when you see an issue, maybe it's not being brought to you. Maybe it is, you know, when mm -hmm. is the time to kind of micromanage and get involved or, or kind of stay out of the way and provide the coaching that others need to, you know, get the job done or get the issue resolved. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think it's, I guess I, a couple things come to mind. I think if it's a particular issue, I guess the question is what's the impact of getting it wrong, right. Or, or letting it take a little bit little bit more time to solve if you don't jump in like is it is it material is it meaningful is it a is sort of a one-time isolated uh issue or is it something more systemic obviously more systemic you know you're probably more likely to jump in i also think just in terms of decisions you know lots of people talk about one-way doors and two-way doors right if it's a one-way door and it's a big decision it's going to be hard to come back then obviously getting more involved is important Sometimes if it's a two-way door and you just have to let the team experiment a little bit. And I do think lots of organizations struggle with this today. They want to be change-oriented. They want to be more innovation-oriented. But all the cultural norms, all the systems, all the processes, all the performance metrics, they don't, um, they don't encourage that because people are afraid that if it doesn't work out, they're going to get stuck right. with the accountability. And I think that's one of the hardest things as a leader in terms of, creating the right balance there um, you know you don't take of course you take you want to take your risks wisely but you have to have an organization that feels like they can experiment and learn and make mistakes you know and make mistakes as part of experimenting yeah. and learning yeah. right and yeah. i think you know i'm probably not, certainly not perfect at this and um and probably don't do it as as you know as as often as i would even like to but i certainly try and make a habit of just i think there's a language around learning when something comes up and something goes wrong is to solve the situation, but make sure in the same moment you're stepping back and asking the team, what can we learn from this? And based on what we've learned from this, what are we going to do differently next time? And I think that in itself helps set up a bit more of a learning culture versus a blaming culture. Very important. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire at T-Tech, Shelley? Uh, certainly, certainly, you know, some, some, what they bring from an expertise or experience perspective is important, but I guess for me, it's a bit more around absolutely cultural fit. What are they, you know, what are they motivated by, right? What, what's their, what's their motivation? All the, are they all in, right? Do they bring something different to the team that's, you know, different than everybody else that's important to that sort of you know, real uh, diverse team, diverse thinking, and definitely, definitely, definitely somebody who's humble mm -hmm. and willing to learn. Um, so my my next question, Shelley, is you, you know, you interview a lot of folks. Um, mm -hmm. Frankly, by the time you see them, they've been vetted and you've had a lot of opportunities to, you know, have those folks um, gone through a variety of different interviews before they've seen them. 
do you have kind of a favorite interview question or a way in which you, you know, kind of uh, separate the wheat from the chaff for the folks, either mm-hmm. in that cultural side of things that you're looking for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, why are you interested in this opportunity? Hmm. Right? What, what is, what's the superpower you think you bring to the table? What, what motivates you? And what's your pet peeve? Hmm. Just one. to get a sense, you know, less around, as you said, their, their experience is well vetted. But it's important to understand, you know, what kind of culture people want to fit into, how they're motivated, why they want the opportunity. Do they see it as a, you know, a rung on the on their career ladder? Do they see it as an opportunity they want to be in for a while? Do they see it as an opportunity where they want to learn? Is it, you know, is it the people? It's, I think it's just important to understand underlying, their underlying motivations and if there's really a good fit. Yeah, awesome. Shelly, you've been very, very generous with your time. Thank you so much for that. We always mm-hmm. have one last question, though, we ask all our CEO guests, and, and that's what kind of career and life advice would you give someone who's got their eyes on their own corner office someday? Oh, goodness. I think, um, I guess, first of all, would be to go for it. And secondly, would be to, you know, be patient. (laughs) Not every single opportunity along the way feels like it's necessarily, you know, a rung on the old ladder, but um, every opportunity presents, presents opportunity in and of itself. And if you figure out how to leverage the strengths you have and to learn something new at the same time, my, my experience is every one of those opportunities at Accenture led to something better. At the time, I might not have had the confidence that was going to be the case, but looking back, it was absolutely the case 100% of the time. That's fantastic. Shelly Swanback, President and CEO of T-Tech, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.